Well, for the past few weeks, we have been discussing these five solas of the Protestant Reformation. These are these five alone statements that were reclaimed by our spiritual forebears from the distortions of the medieval church. So these five beliefs are not innovations to Christianity. Rather, they are a return to what we believe from the New Testament at the start. And so, we've heard how it is Scripture alone that is our rule of faith. It is not tradition, no matter how good those traditions are, and it is not experience or reason, which are good things in and of themselves, but Scripture is our rule of faith and belief. And speaking of faith, it is by faith alone that we are justified before God. That means that we don't do any good works. We don't contribute in any moral, ethical way to our salvation. And last week we discussed how it is by grace alone that we are saved. Meaning that that is a gift from God that has nothing to do with who we are as people. Nothing to do with our personal or ethical or, or spiritual merit at all. And so this morning we will hear about how that it is Christ alone, by Christ alone, that we are saved. Now, the question obviously would be, I think, if we're really digging into this, what self-professed Christian of any tradition or denomination would ever disagree with the statement that it is by Christ alone that we are saved? Who in their right mind that calls himself a Christian would say otherwise? Well, the reality is, of course, that I don't know a single person of any denomination who would say differently that we are saved uh, by Christ alone. I don't know anybody that would disagree with that. However, like with Scripture, like with faith, like with grace, when we say we are saved by Christ alone, the nuances of this doctrine can differ drastically from different Christian traditions and denominations and so forth. So when we say we're saved by Christ alone, and a church down the street may say we're saved by Christ alone, we can think of those things totally different. So we have to define our terms. In his book on this matter, Stephen Wellam says that the Reformers' main disagreement with Rome, who would say they were saved by Christ alone, was their rejection that the Reformers rejected uh, Rome's sacramental theology, which insisted and undermined the sufficiency of Christ's work. In other words, that it is not that uh, the, the medieval church said that um, they didn't believe that we were saved by Christ alone, but the way they talked about the theology of sacraments, or what we would call ordinances, that actually undermined what Jesus did in his life, death, and resurrection to gain us salvation. So, Rome confessed, of course, the exclusivity of Christ for salvation. They didn't claim anybody else. They didn't claim that we can be saved by anybody else. That's not where we disagree. We disagree... Um, that they did not equally emphasize that Christ's work, especially at Calvary, was sufficient for our salvation. That, of course, they believe that Jesus is the only way to the Father, but 
they believe that there's something that happens after Calvary that's, that we must do that's crucial to our salvation. So, their thinking is the cross of Christ, although it's necessary, they don't doubt that, but this is not the sole ground of justification. That's where the problem is. And, you know, that is a, a theology that has morphed and found its way into many Protestant understandings, too, and prosperity theology, and all sorts of different theology. So this is an ever-present problem, too. And so here's where all these ideas begin to intersect. And here is where Christ is the hinge point for really everything that we've discussed coming before. If Christ's work on the cross is not sufficient for our salvation, here's what that means. It means that faith alone really is not sufficient for salvation. Because we need to not only believe, but we need to work. We need to accomplish a little bit of something so that we can be saved. Whatever Christ didn't accomplish on the cross, even though maybe He accomplished most of it, we still have to contribute a little bit. And so, if that's true, well, then grace is not really sufficient for us either. Because even if the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is the gift that God gives to us, and the majority of what we need to be saved, well, it still isn't the full package. We need to uh, add an extra couple postage stamps to that package, so to speak. And so, we need to supplement His gift with our own merit so that we can be saved. So if Christ's work is not sufficient, everything starts to come unglued, and we can get into very bad news territory very quickly. Now over the last few weeks, we've agreed that the Scriptures show us that it is by grace alone, through faith alone, that we are saved. When it comes to the Christian life lived out, are we actually accomplishing anything through our own power and crucial worship acts that are commanded by the Lord. So, when we are baptized, when we choose to be baptized, or when we take the Lord's Supper, are we actually doing anything that is working towards our own salvation? So it's crucial to understand this. This is the question we need to get to. Is Christ, by His person and gifts and work, sufficient to save us, or do we need to bring something to the table? Pun intended. Again, I think it will help us to have some historical context why we even need to ask this question. You know, we're probably detached enough from the realities of the past to think, of course, this is what we believe. But it has not always been so throughout church history, like with Scripture and faith and grace, all doctrines that were believed in the medieval church, the definition and understanding of those teachings was not always clear or not always accurate. And so, in the Reformers' day, the topic of debate around Christ, uh, around Christ and His work was this. Was the power of His work given to us when we believed? So, was what Jesus did on the cross when He came from the tomb, when He ascended to heaven, is that power, whatever that achieves mysteriously between God and humanity to reconcile us, is that power given and granted to us upon faith? Or, only when the leadership of the church invokes it and gives it out and bestows it through things like the sacraments? Is it Jesus 
that does the saving? Or does the church have part in the salvation process as well? Well, at the time, the popular answer was, well, Jesus did most of the work, but now it's up to the church to get this, this grace out to people. Now it's up to you to receive this grace and work hard for it and do what's right. And here's where things can get tricky, I think, for us. Because here's the reality that I think Scripture teaches us. Because these sacraments, or as we probably are comfortable, or, or as we call them, ordinances, these things do have real spiritual power. We don't want to react so strongly against sort of Roman superstition that we strip God's grace of all of its power. So, what I mean by that is I don't think Paul would warn us in his letter to the Corinthians that we ought to repent and reconcile with fellow Christians before we take the Lord's Supper because if we don't, it might make us physically sick unto death. If whatever was happening at this table was not spiritually significant or powerful or God wasn't working through it, Paul wouldn't have to say something like that. And Peter, in his letter, would not say something so audacious as, baptism now saves you if these things didn't hold significant spiritual power. If they were only purely symbolic acts, we would not have that kind of language from the apostles. So in other words, I don't think the apostles would have fenced off the Lord's Supper table or the baptismal pool to only true disciples of Jesus if God wasn't actually working spiritual power and blessings through them. So, while we do believe that the Lord's Supper does symbolize the crucifixion, and baptism does symbolize the Lord's death and burial, and eventually His resurrection, they do more than just symbolize. When we Christians partake in these Lord-ordained rituals of discipleship and of worship, we do so, indeed, partake in a spiritual mystery where God blesses us through these gifts He's ordained for us. There are real spiritual power in them. But that's why we get the word sacrament. That's just an old Latin word meaning mystery. The gift, the grace that He gives us is a mystery. How this ordinary bread and cup and this ordinary water could confer real spiritual blessing is a mystery. It's not something we can scientifically, we can't put the bread and the wine under the microscope or, or check the pH balance in the water and see that somehow it gets spiritually charged when we're plunged beneath it in an act of baptism. We can't see that. We can't measure that. But we know that God really acts through it. Just like when we open this Bible, which is just, you know, Times New Roman printed on some very thin paper in black and sometimes red ink. It's just, it looks like just a book to the world. And some of the world reads it, and to them it just is a puzzling, baffling book. But when Christians read this, we hear the voice of God speaking through us. That's, there's a mystery in that. That God's Spirit speaks through this Word. That He enlivens us. That He gives us power and life through these Scriptures read. There's a mystery happening in that. It's the same 
with the Lord's Supper and baptism. There is real, life-giving, even dangerous power in the table and in the font and in this book. And we revere these places not because they're some magical, mystical items. Peter said there's no power in just that water. But that is where the Holy Lord Jesus Christ, King of the universe, meets us. And we do not take His glory lightly. We don't come... Wherever the Lord meets us is holy ground. And we do not come to that flippantly. We don't understand how He communes such blessing to us, but we feel it. We experience it. We know it to be true. And so that is why we take these things reverentially. Not because of them, not because of the symbols or the acts themselves, but because that is where God meets us. However, the problem with the medieval church, and to much extent the modern Roman church, is that its teaching on the sacraments is that they are necessary to make up for sins that were not covered by the cross of Christ. That's where we get into the problem. Namely, that sins that we commit after we are baptized or we come to faith. So the cross of Christ handles everything up until that point. And then after that, we need other powerful sacraments to to make sure that we're cleansed. In other words, the church has to give us gifts, things like penance or anointing for the sick, or we have to commit ourselves to certain holy living, like through holy orders, taking up a religious vocation, or dedicating ourselves uh, to uh, sanctification through matrimony. That's the way we make up for the sins we commit after the cross. But the problem with that is that essentially this says, Rome's essentially saying with that that it is Christ plus the sacraments that are necessary for salvation. Or to just put it in more simple language, it is Christ and His cross plus our obedience and observance that allows us to be saved. The problem is it gives us too much power and it does not give the mysterious cross of Jesus Christ the power that it actually has and accomplished. And so, this is where the Reformers had to break with the medieval church. It's in their clear understanding of places like Romans 8, where Paul says, because of that cross, because of Jesus, His person and work, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You don't now need to, well, you're up until that point in your life, you're not condemned, but now you've got to do some more stuff to make sure you keep not being condemned. That's not the way that Paul construes what Jesus did. Meaning that those who are in Jesus, by His work revealed to us by grace, grasped by us by the gift of faith, sealed by the Spirit, These things mean that no matter what we do or think or say, that if we are in Jesus, we are truly, actually, really saved. Christ has set us free 
from the law of sin and death by His cross. He didn't just put a down payment and now we have to work and scrounge up the last few pennies to buy our redemption, to redeem ourselves. No, He set us free. Christ alone fulfilled the demands of the law and gives us the freedom that we could never achieve ourselves. Paul tells us towards the end of the chapter in Romans 8, verse 29 and 30, he says this, For those who He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son so that He would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those who He predestined, He also called. And those He called, He also justified. And those He justified, He also glorified. So look who Paul says is responsible for our salvation through the whole process from start to finish. It is Jesus. He foreknew us and predestined us and called us and justified and glorified and encompasses everything from before our birth until after our death. Jesus did it all. Paul contributes nothing to that. Peter contributes nothing. We, Maranatha, contribute nothing to what Christ has done. All of it is done for us. And all and although the sacraments we believe are His gracious gifts to us to encourage and bless us and enrich us, our performance and our participation of them are not necessary for salvation. That doesn't mean they're not crucially important. Anybody that says they're a Christian and never follows through in obedience with baptism and who and who doesn't come to the Lord's Supper table, and repentance and and, and, uh, humility are depriving themselves of life-giving grace. And perhaps even incurring some judgment upon themselves for not taking the work of Christ seriously enough to also participate in the gifts that He gives us. They are crucial to our life. There's not a person I would say that is that if they intend on living a good Christian life, that they do not participate in these things. However, our obedience and follow-through with them is not what saves us. Can we see the distinction in that? For the, for the medieval Roman church, the way they understood human nature... And God's grace was this sort of nature-grace interdependence. It is that grace, um, it, it, it uh, perfects uh, our nature. And so for them, Adam's original sin marred our human nature. It damaged it irrevocably. But the grace of the sacraments elevates us to a higher status. So it's like we're entering into a different tier of humanity. And this is to say that if we participate in God's work, then our work of participation, meaning that we're faithful to take up these sacraments, means that we kind of push ourselves closer and closer to God so that if we get close enough, we can finally be saved. But the reformers saw that the situation was much worse than Rome would admit. Because when Adam and Eve sinned, 
their fall corrupted the entirety of the human race and the entirety of the human being. Our thoughts, our bodies, our will, our loves were all irrevocably shattered and broken and worst of all, dead. And so we are dead in our trespasses and sins like we heard last week. That is our entire nature now. And so grace frees us from this unnatural nature. It doesn't, grace doesn't just give us um, booster rockets to escape the atmosphere of sin. Grace is the thing that takes us out of the casket and gives us new life. It is not just, it's not just a supplement so we can get higher and higher to God. We are dead. There's no communion with the living God. Grace makes us alive and puts us into His presence. Now, the other way that this complicates things is that when we think of uh, grace just elevating human nature, just perfecting it, making it better, it ends up creating these kind of uh, spiritual hierarchies. And so the church itself becomes held up as a kind of perfect human reality where there is no, uh, the, the church is, is, is divine and, and beyond any sort of um, rebuke or anything like that. And so the church is a, a repository for grace. And so the, the church can act as sort of a vicar, a kind of a, a second Christ where it can give out grace through sacraments and through the, and through the saints. And so that kind of thinking, however, leads us to what really got the whole Reformation started, is that it led to practices like indulgences. And indulgences was literally selling off. This was the logic behind indulgences. Say that there was a saint in the past. Let's just take Augustine. What he did for the church, he was, he was such a, a, a powerful saint um, and he was so important that he earned all this extra grace. He's in God's presence, but he had a whole uh, bank vault full of grace that he didn't need. And now the church says, if you pay us some money, we will go into the spiritual vault of Augustine and take that, a bar of grace, and give it to you so that you are less likely or your uh, ancestor in purgatory can get closer to God. That's, what, that's the reality of the situation, is that grace can be purchased through the church as, as, a, as, a, as kind of a bank of it. You can see how that leads to all sorts of abuses very quickly. And it also led to the practice of praying to, um, of, of, uh, uh, using the saints as mediators. Say you pray to St. Augustine or something that with his extra grace, with his higher up status, he's better and more important than you. Well, he can talk to Jesus about you. See, you can't, you're, you're low on the totem pole. You're not in a state of grace. You're messy. You haven't done enough. You haven't purchased enough. You haven't been obedient enough. So you need somebody to go. You need a in-between. You need a mediator to the mediator. So you can see how this creates, again, sort of abuses where the leadership of the church as an institution and those who have gone before with their good deeds are the ones 
that we need to rely on to give us a bit of their grace that at least when we die, we'll have just enough that God won't wipe us off the map. And so, in practice, what all this means is that grace and faith and sacraments and saints and all of that stuff means that we are really not truly saved by Christ alone. Christ gets the majority of the work done, but then we need to rely on all of this intricate system of spiritual borrowing to get the rest. The person and gift and work of Jesus on the cross, that's mostly what saves us, but not the whole way. Christ may have started the transaction, but we've got to put a few shekels into the down payment. And we need all these other people, the saints, the church, the sacraments, to scrounge up the rest so that we can be saved. Now you can understand how that introduces anxiety. Well, maybe the, the, the you know, my church says I'm in a state of grace, but you know, what if I haven't participated in these sacraments rightly? Or, or what if I've done that, but you know, the saint is not going to give me? I mean, it just it introduces all sorts of problems. But let's contrast what the church came to start practicing with what the scriptures say. So, Paul in Galatians chapter 3, verse 10, starts this way. He says, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Anybody that relies on human goodness is cursed. Because it is written, everybody who does not do everything written in the book of the law is cursed, is condemned. So that's the standard that you have to achieve. So let's apply that thinking for the Old Testament covenant law to the New Testament and subsequent church history. Wouldn't it follow that if Paul is right, and of course we would say he is, if Paul's teaching that truthfully, then wouldn't it follow that all who rely on their personal merit and their total obedience to Christ and their full observation of the sacraments and the successful cajoling of the saints or the bishops and selling off their extra graces, that they need to have a 100% completion of these things so as to not be cursed. Wouldn't they need to make sure that all the list of things they need to do, they have done perfectly or they're cursed? I mean, isn't that the same thinking? Of course, because if Christ is responsible even for 99.99% of our salvation, but we still have to live utterly perfectly for that 0.01% in order to not be cursed or damned, guess what? We're in trouble. Because even if it's just a fraction, just a pinpoint in the spaceship hole means that you're going to lose oxygen and die even one chink in the armor, so to speak, means that you're not going to make it. This is why Paul continues in verse 11. Now it's clear that no one is justified before God by the law. Nobody. Not Moses. Not David. Not Samuel. Not Isaiah. Not Paul. Not Peter. Nobody that we read about in Scripture has attained 
the law of God in full. Nobody. Even the one young rich ruler that said, I've done everything. Jesus says, okay, we'll sell that stuff. Sell all you have. Give it to the poor and follow me. Immediately. Okay, you say you love God more than anything? Well, give all the stuff that, you're, that you rely on away. Give it to poor people who are in need. Follow me, I'll provide everything you need. He went away very sorrowful because he just he liked his stuff too much. Even the ones that say they adhere to the law, it's clear, nobody can do that. Paul says no one is justified before God by the law because... And he quotes Habakkuk here, not just himself, the righteous live by faith. That's how we have life in God. By faith, which God counts to us, to Abraham and to us, as righteousness. Even pre-Christ, we can see that the Scriptures teach. The prophets perceived that it would not be adherence to the law that would save them. It would be God and His grace and His mercy that saves them. He underlines this again in verse 12. But the law is not based on faith. (laughs) You don't just keep most of the law and say, well, you know, I'm a pretty nice guy and I believe in God, so that should get me there, right? No, Paul says. The law is not based on faith. That's sentimental thinking. That's hogwash. The one who does these things in full is what he means. The one who lives according to, or the one who does the law fully will live by them. But no one can do that. So he's just saying his, his argument backwards now. Again, the law isn't based on faith. It is based on 100% obedience to it. And the one who will live then, he quotes Leviticus 18 here, is the one who does all of these things perfectly. So here are the stakes for us. If we do not obey everything, and I mean everything, every jot and tittle of God's law perfectly, we are cursed. I know all of you well enough to know that you're all in trouble. And I know myself enough to know that I'm doubly in trouble then. We have fallen short of the glory of God. And our unholiness cannot coexist with His holiness. But here's the turn. Here's why we don't have to go home sweating and panicking and praying to everyone that came before us and, and, and feverishly uh, taking the Lord's Supper in, in terror and, and, and realizing that baptism is just painting a target on our back. Here's why we don't have to fear that. Because verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Because it is written, cursed is everyone who hung on a tree. Jesus Christ, fully human, did what none of us could. He obeyed the law perfectly. He kept every aspect of those 613 laws in the the Old Testament that we have in the books of Moses, and then some. He did it all perfectly. And by that perfection, He could redeem us by the curse, or from the curse, by breaking the curse and even being condemned by the curse Himself. But even more than that, He became that curse. He took that curse upon Himself. 
And that's what it means when, when Paul refers to this somewhat obscure line in the law, cursed is anybody that's hanged on a tree, meaning as a, a retribution or punishment for breaking the law. Well, Christ, who is perfect in all ways, still paid the price as if He was the lawbreaker because He took the laws that we broke, the punishment for them, what we deserved on Himself on a tree hewn into a cross. He voluntarily, lovingly, willingly took all of our sin, all of our debt, all of our death and curse on Himself so that as He died and we had faith in Him, we would not be responsible for those things anymore. Now, no mere human could pay this toll. Jesus, fully human, yet also fully God, achieved our salvation alone by His perfect obedience to the law, and because He was God, His perfect grace given to us makes all of our curses into blessings. So it's not just that He paid our debt, which was needed. As a human being, He paid our debt. But as God Himself, He then reversed what we had done. He turned the curse that we had incurred and He in His own divine way turned that curse into a blessing and then gave it to us. Only God could do that. See, baptism isn't merely about your obedience and allegiance to a new king. It's about how the king was perfectly obedient and allegiant to the Father for you unto death. And see, The Lord's Supper isn't merely about your remembering His death. It is about participating in the saving reality of what His broken body and spilt blood accomplished for you. And that is your redemption. And you don't have to pay for any other saint's extra grace or pray to any other mediator beside Christ. Because Jesus' full grace was unleashed on the cross, at the tomb, and at His throne, even right now, for you. He is the one alone who gives you grace and He gives it to you freely. You have more grace than you'll ever need and you didn't have to purchase it from any other man than Jesus Christ. And you didn't purchase it from Him. He gave it to you freely. When you believed in Him and confessed, God really did raise this Jesus from the grave. You went to your spiritual bank account and it was, you know, minus $10 million worth. You found $1 trillion worth of of His grace placed in there. And you didn't have to ask anybody for it. He gave it to you freely. And so, when you need grace and mercy for a new day, and boy, Do we need grace and mercy for every day? You come to Him alone for it. You don't pray to this saint or that saint. You come to your elder brother and your great high priest who the author of Hebrews tells us sympathizes with you in your weakness. He's not so cold and distant and, and divine that he doesn't understand. He understands perfectly what you're going through. And you can come to him 24-7, day or night. And guess what? When you come to him and all your weakness, 
when you come weary and heavy laden and you go you don't have to go sheepishly through a chain of command you don't have to be placed on hold and you know you dial up heaven's phone and augustine answers he's like well let me transfer you to irenaeus and and then he says hang on you're not in the right department let me get you over to to calvin and you don't have to do that when you come before the throne of grace you can come boldly and know your Father listens to you because of Jesus Christ alone. You can come like a child and ask for any help, for any situation, and every time of need, and know that He is listening. And do you know why Jesus has set things up this way? Paul tells us in our final verse, verse 14, the purpose was that the blessing of Abraham would go to the Gentiles. Meaning it would go to the nations. What God began in one family through Jesus, He has spread it to everybody so that we could receive the promised Spirit. The promised life. The promised resurrection through faith. All of this was done so that even we, as undeserving as we are, might by Christ alone receive the sure and certain promise of salvation. No saint or sacrament is needed when you have your Savior, Christ alone. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on us sinners. We know that by Your person and work, You already have and You always will So to You be all glory and honor and praise and all we say and think and do. For it is in Your name alone we pray. Amen.